This message by Jake Simmons was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Jake serves as a pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Good morning. You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. If you're here and don't have a Bible and you would like one, please raise your hand and one of our ushers will bring you a free Bible that you can keep and use this morning. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. We're going to be continuing our series. So now I have the privilege to read God's Word to us, and as I read it, may God open the eyes of our hearts to behold the wondrous truth found in it. So join me now as I have the privilege to read God's Word. Starting in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen? Amen. Well, these, these first 13 verses of the Gospel of Mark are considered a prologue. They are an introduction, and like any good introduction, Mark, the author, wants to set the stage for what the rest of his gospel has for us. He's wanting to orient us as readers. He's wanting to introduce us to the main characters. He's wanting to begin to introduce the plot line. He's wanting to introduce us to what is about to take place. And as we've heard from the very beginning, the main burden for Mark is that we would come to know and understand what is the gospel. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so he wants to make sure that we don't make the mistake of reading his gospel like we do, like we look at a picture that we're in. At times when when you go to look at a picture and you, you know you're in it, what is the first thing you look for? You look for yourself. I do the same thing. How do I look? How's my smile? How do I look compared to everyone else? Okay, okay, now let me look around. But first we begin with ourselves. We can do that with the Bible. When we go to God's Word, the first thing we can look for is ourselves. And so what Mark wants to do is he wants to help us. And he wants to keep us from making that error. And he's wanting to say, look, before we begin, I want to spend these 13 verses and I want to set the stage for you. I want to introduce you to who this is about. And it's not you. I want to make that clear from the get-go. This, this book is about Jesus Christ. We saw this with John the Baptist, didn't we? John the Baptist has this heart. John the Baptist was a big deal. He was a religious celebrity. Everyone was coming. Everyone was coming to be baptized by John. But then we see even, even John the Baptist makes clear 
that no, this Jesus, I may be a big deal, but this Jesus is the real deal. This Jesus is the one that I have been proclaiming and pointing forward to. And so now as Jesus enters the picture, what Mark is doing, he's saying, okay, let's set our eyes on this Jesus. This is the one. This is the gospel. This is the main character. And I'm going to introduce you. I'm going to begin to introduce you to this plot line through his baptism, through this temptation. We mustn't let Mark's brevity. This is a very brief introduction, but in it, there is meaning. It is pregnant with meaning. These verses, we can't pass over quickly. What I want us to do this morning is what Bill encouraged us to do from the get-go. I want us to search for the glory of Christ. I want us to begin our search for the glory of Christ in these verses. And though they're brief, that they are significant. What, the way that I see them is that we're on an archaeological site. And what we have the privilege to do this morning is that we have our shovels and we get to dig down into God's word. And as we dig down into this archaeological site, there's going to be these layers of time. We're going to see God's purposes, his redemptive purposes culminating into Jesus Christ. As we search for, for the glory of Jesus Christ, as we, as we dig into this, what we're going to see is that the, all of the Bible, all of the Old Testament, everything that God has been doing is found in Jesus Christ. This gospel that Mark has to write for us, it's captivating. It should captivate us. It should, it should build our anticipation for who is this man? Who is this Christ? So this morning, if I could try to capture, what does Mark want us to find? What is it that Mark wants this text? What does it want to have the effect on our lives? Here's how I would capture it. I would say Mark wants us to be gripped by God's salvation in his beloved son. Be gripped. Be gripped by God's salvation in his beloved son. And so we're going we're gonna to unpack this with three points. And as we dig, what I hope is that as we look at and consider Jesus Christ that we're going to be gripped by this salvation that, we, that he has brought through him. So our first point this morning, Jesus identifies with us. Jesus identifies with us. Verse 9, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Jesus' baptism is a touchstone moment, both for Christ himself and for the other disciples. It's, it's significant enough for, for Jesus even to point back to. We're going to see this as we study the gospel. There, there are going to be Pharisees and scribes who approach him and say, what, by what authority do you have to cleanse the temple? Why, what authority? Who gives you this authority to come in here and act like you're in charge of this place? And what Jesus does is that he points them back and asks them a question, directing them to his baptism. It's also important enough for when the apostles found it necessary to choose a new disciple. Once Judas had betrayed them and he was dead and Jesus had risen and he ascended to the right hand and they need one more disciple. What they say, the, one of the requirements is that this, this disciple had to be at Jesus' baptism. The person had to have seen Jesus' baptism. So this is a significant moment. This is a significant moment both for Jesus and for the disciples. So let's begin first by defining what is baptism. What does it mean? The Greek word for baptism means to dip, to fully emerge, to plunge. 
They would use this word back during this time period to describe the dye trade. So, so they would take a cloth and it would be dipped or immersed into a vat of dye. The material was baptized into that dye. So if a cloth was baptized into a vat of red dye, then it would come out and it would be red. If it was baptized or immersed into a, a vat of blue dye, then it would come out and it would be blue. In the same way, so the point of that is, whatever that's being baptized into, it's being identified with something. So, so when something was baptized, when it was submerged or plunged into something, what it was signifying is that when it came out of that, then it's going to identify with whatever that was. So we see this, right? John is proclaiming a baptism of repentance. So he's, he's saying that you can come and be baptized. What are, what are these people wanting to be baptized in? They're wanting to say that they are sinners needing to repent. And they want to identify themselves with what John's baptism was pointing to, and that was forgiveness. They want to identify themselves with that. They're pledging allegiance to this. So when you read the word baptism in Scripture, what, what you should see is, okay, what is being identified here? Who is being identified with who or with what? But that still leaves us with this question. Why was Jesus baptized? Why was the Son of God baptized? Notice the shift of focus. In verse 8, the focus is on John and his baptism. But now, everything, everyone's attention, John's attention, now Jesus is at the center. And now he's focused on Jesus' baptism. Not, not that John's baptizing him, but that Jesus is being baptized. Why would Jesus do this? If this was a baptism for people for the sake of repentance of sin, then why is Jesus being baptized? Did Jesus have sin to repent of? No, Jesus had never sinned. He was the sinless one. So why, why is he coming into the baptismal waters? Why is he entering into this baptism of repentance? Well, listen to Sinclair Ferguson. He says, here already, Jesus indicates how he will become our Savior. By standing in the river in whose waters penitent Jews had symbolically washed away their sins and allowing that water polluted by those sins to be, to be poured over his perfect being. Jesus enters into those baptismal waters not because he needed it, but because we needed him to do that. He walked into those sin-stained waters with his perfect life, his righteous life. And what he says is that I am here for you to pour your sin. I'm ready to be baptized. I'm ready not just to, to say, hey, I identify with you, but I'm willing to take the plunge. I am, I am willing not just to say, yes, I see your sins and I sympathize, but I am willing to take on your sins as your substitute. Brothers and sisters, this is a preview of the cross and the resurrection. This is a preview of what we have to look forward to in the gospel of Mark. Mark is wasting no time. Jesus, he's come on the scene. What do we need to know about Jesus? Well, he's going to be baptized. And here's what that's pointing to. We're already looking to where is Jesus headed? Why is he on the scene? And already we have these rumblings. 
We have, the, we have this, this anticipation. We have these questions. And they're pointing us to Calvary. They're pointing us to why Jesus came. Here, and this should, this should remind us and help us. Here's the confidence that we have and hope in our baptism. It's not that our baptisms add anything to our salvation. When we're baptized, what we are proclaiming is that we identify with Jesus Christ. What we're saying is that we have trusted in this Jesus who died on the cross for our sins. This one who identifies with us as our Savior. When we're baptized, what we're saying is that that, that we want to be found in Him. We want to be found in Him. We want to let people know this is who we believe. This is the one that we want to be identified with. So if, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, thanks for coming. Thanks for, for, for being a part of our service this morning. What we have to offer you this morning is not first baptism, but what that baptism points to. What we have to offer you is Jesus Christ, Son of God, the Savior of the world, who came into this world and identifies with you. Identifies you, with you in a way that nobody else does. He identifies with you in your sin and he came and he shows his love for you that he was willing to deal with your sin. The greatest problem you have is that you have sinned against the holy God and God has sent his own son to rescue you. And he invites you to come through faith, through confession of sin and faith, to trust in him, to be in a way plunged into the person of who Jesus is, identifying with him, putting your whole trust and faith onto him. That's why Jesus was baptized. That's why he was baptized. Because he loves us. Because he wants to identify with us. So you see Mark, in this Mark and style, you see that, that he, 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 there's, su- there's a sudden shift, right? Verse 9, he's talking about Jesus' baptism. And then he says in verse 10, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens open up. Mark loves to use this language. He loves to to jerk you around. And so we're going to go to to our second point, which is God identifies with Jesus. God identifies with Jesus. So the question is, is Jesus is baptized. He comes out of the water. And then this immediately happens. He sees the heavens being torn open, the spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So what what is going on here? Well, well, God is identifying with his son. So there's, there's two ways that God is identifying with his son that he's letting us know. First, there is a visual identification. There's a visual identification and really a consecration, meaning that, he's, that, that God is making Jesus sacred. He's setting him apart for service. And so God provides this visual affirmation through the heavens being torn open and the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus. And, and, he, and he uses simile to say, like a dove. And what, what is great is that what he's saying is that God's kingdom has come. All of heaven has opened up. Isaiah 64.1, the prophet is saying, oh God, that you would rend the heavens and that you would come down. Jesus is baptized and what happens? The heavens are rent open. They are torn open. Heaven is coming down. Heaven has come down. God has come to his people. The prophecy is being fulfilled. 
And brothers and sisters, Mark is very specific with, his, with the language he uses. Notice that Mark doesn't say that the heavens were gently open and there was a dove and there was a... No, he says that, that the heavens were torn open. It's a very drastic verb. There's two places that Mark uses this verb. Its first place is here. The first place is here. You know where the second one is? It's in Mark 15, 38. Here's what Mark 15, 37 through 39 says. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Two places. These are two climactic moments In Jesus' baptism, the heavens are torn open. God is coming down saying, this is the one. And then pointing to not only will Jesus be baptized in the waters of the Jordan, but he will be baptized on a cross in his blood, shed for the forgiveness of our sins. John is pointing us this is why I have come. This, John is pointing us to, or Mark is pointing us to why Christ has come. This is the gospel. Remember, he is building this anticipation. He's providing us with this lens that we read the entirety of his gospel with. The Holy Spirit's silence had been deafening to the Jewish people. There had been this period where where the Jewish people are wondering, what is God going to do? What is going to happen with us? He's been silent. This is what God's going to do. When the heavens are torn open, heaven has come, the Spirit descends on Jesus. The Spirit is working. The Spirit is present. Remember what John said? I will baptize you with blood, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The the Holy Spirit is at work. And what the Spirit's doing is saying that this is the one. This is the one that I have come, that I'm going to fill, and that he is going to fulfill the mission. He is the promised Savior. It's, It's uncertain exactly why Mark uses a dove to signify the Spirit coming. But I do think that the imagery, what it represents is that, that it's a promise, an initiation of new beginnings, the end of judgment. Remember Noah, he sends a dove out and it flies and it lands and it doesn't come back. It's a sign that, okay, God's judgment is over and there's this new beginning that's about to take place. Salvation has come. So this, the spirit has come like a dove and has rested. There's this new beginning, this new promise. The spirit is at work ushering in God's kingdom. Christ has come. The second stage that God identifies with Jesus is verbally. So not only is there a visual, but there's a verbal identification. So in verse 11, Mark writes, And a voice came from heaven and said, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus is God's unique, one and only beloved Son. Son. Many were baptized, right? Many came from all over to be baptized, but there was only one who, when he was baptized, this happened. There's only one who, when he was baptized in the, in the waters of the Jordan River, that the heavens were torn open and the Spirit descended on him. 
And that should matter. Mark's saying, look, Jesus, the Son of God, his beloved Son with whom he is well pleased. What I love is at this moment, you know, last week Bill told us that, that John the Baptist had this desire that, that I would decrease and he would increase. And what I love is that John the Baptist, his wish has been granted. He is long gone. Who is John the Baptist? We have Jesus. God doesn't need John to speak for him. This is a family conversation. God the Father is speaking direct discourse over his son saying this. Yeah, John said he's preparing the way for the one, but here, let me add my voice. This is my beloved son. This is the one whom I love. Notice the Trinity is at work here. The triune God is present. This is a significant moment. And what, and what we hear when the Father speaks, there are these echoes. There are these echoes that, that have been echoing throughout the Old Testament. Promises, covenants that God has made to, to, to major men who were representatives to God's people. So first, Abraham. He says, Abraham, he makes a promise. Abraham is, is made a promise. He receives his son, Isaac. And then in Genesis 22, God God calls Abraham to offer his most beloved son to be sacrificed. So we have this language of of Abraham's most beloved son. Here is God's most beloved son. What is he being offered? He's he's being offered to be a sacrifice. There are these echoes of that. You have Psalm 2, verse 7. And in this, what this is, is about the son is a king. This is David's greater son, the one who will sit on the throne forever. This is a coronation event. This is the one saying, this is the one, this is the king. This is the one who the spirit will come on and he will sit on the throne forever. This is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. And then lastly, what we hear is that not only is this my son, not only is this the king, but this is the suffering servant. Isaiah 42.1, it describes the son who will endure suffering. So there are these echoes that are just reverberating, that, are just, that the people are waiting. And what I love is that when God speaks over his son, those echoes are silenced in him because he has come. The son of God has come. God's most beloved son has come. And we must be clear on this. Jesus does not become God's son in this moment. Jesus has always eternally existed as God's son. He has always forever enjoyed the presence of his father. This is not God saying, okay, Jesus, now I make you my son. Boom. No. Remember, John starts his gospel pretty clear, right? Verse 1, before this takes place, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That title has already been given. We don't need his baptism to make him the Son of God. What God is, is making clear is just communicating to us and to his Son that this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is God's Messiah his own, is only because he first is the son who is cherished by the Father. The only reason Jesus can be our Messiah is because he's God's son. 
And at the baptism, the heavenly voice declares, first of all, who Jesus is. And what I love is that this this has relevance for us. God the Father speaking to His Son matters to us. There is comfort that we receive. There is hope when when, when all things are hopeless. There is security when we when we feel vulnerable. Listen to J.C. Ryle. There is a rich mind of comfort in these words. For all Christ's believing members, in themselves and in their own doings, they see nothing to please God. They are daily, if not hourly, sensible of weakness, shortcoming, and imperfection in all their ways. Oh, but let them recollect that the Father regards them as members of His beloved Son, Jesus Christ. He sees no spot in them. The way the words that God speaks over His Son, His beloved Son, are the words that He speaks over us because we have trusted in God's beloved Son. The greatest privilege of the gospel is not just that we are saints. Yes, that is a significant part of the gospel. God has saved us from our sins, but he has adopted us into his family. He calls us sons and daughters. What we receive as sons is that we receive an inheritance. Whatever Jesus gets, the smile of his father, the fellowship of his father, the promise of his father, we get as well. That's what we get. That's how much God loves us. Is that he sent his beloved son. His only son. We must not miss that. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Are you discouraged this morning? more aware of, of, of what, you've, what you don't have than what you have. You feel broken. You feel lonely. I think the Lord would, would want you to know that, that He's giving you something that can never be taken from you. It's His Son. It's, it's an inheritance for you. And that if He's willing to give you His Son, then everything else that you need is, is, is less compared to this. If I can give you this, then I will take care of the rest for you. I am for you. If you ever question if God is for you, what we can do is we can look to the cross and be reminded, okay, God, you do love me. You do love me. You are my father. You are my father. You are well pleased in me because you've sent your son, your most beloved son, to identify with me, to die on the cross for me, to resurrect for me, to ascend to the right hand of the Father for me. All that for us. Brothers and sisters, this is just the prologue. This is just the prologue. We're just getting started. We're just getting started. This scene is powerful. There's an intimacy. There's a relationship, but it's quickly changed. As we go to verses 12 through 14, the power and the potency of the scene is changed immediately to isolation in the wilderness. So this will lead us to our third point. God's son meets God's enemy. 
You know, in many ways, Jesus, it, it feels like at least with John how he writes that Jesus' hair is still wet when he arrives in the wilderness. He makes it feel like that Jesus had just been baptized and immediately he's driven out into the wilderness. It's almost like his hair is just dripping. This scene is stark, it's bleak. You would think that after Jesus' baptism, there would be this wonderful reception. Oh, the king has come. Let the trumpet sound. Let the people come. Bring the feast. Let's celebrate. But there is no grand reception. There is no grand party. Jesus has gone from the cool water of the Jordan and the voice of his father to the heat of the wilderness, to the aridness of the wilderness. And the only voice now that he hears is that of his adversary, Satan, his enemy, Satan. Heaven has just come down in Jesus' baptism. All the persons of the Godhead were there, Father, Son, and Spirit. But now in just, in just the next sentence, in just the next moment, all hell has broken loose. And, and we must not miss this. This is so important. Who took Jesus to the wilderness? Who took him there? Did Satan? No. The Spirit brought Jesus into the wilderness. God himself sent him into the wilderness. And not only did God send him, but Jesus submitted to the Father, following, willingly, without complaint, saying, okay, I'm going to the wilderness. We must not miss that. This is not some change in the plan, right? This isn't a surprise to God. No, God is directing all of this. Every, every facet of it, God is involved in. Every detail. This is his beloved son. He's involved in every detail of our life as well. Notice Mark, he, he mentions the wild animals here. This would have symbolized the horror and danger of Jesus, that, that what Jesus was facing in the wilderness. He was thrown to the wolves. Lions, tigers, and bears, oh my. This is no picnic for Jesus, right? I think that's the scene here. This is, this is not glamping, right? Jesus didn't bring a nice tent or his third wheel, got his air conditioning, and just hanging out in the wilderness, ignoring Satan as his enemy. No. There's wild animals, there's threat, there's danger. He's alone, he's isolated. I mean, when you go hiking in the Smokies and you're about to hit a trailhead and there's a park ranger there saying, hey, there's been a couple bear sightings, but just be careful. I mean, it doesn't really make you feel good, right? You begin, and, and you're, you're looking, you, there's this sense of danger. You're in the wild. That's, that's, what's, that's what Mark is trying to show here. Jesus, he's not just chilling out. This is a test. It's hard. Angels are having to come and minister to him and help him. This is no easy thing. This, is, this should also show us with the angels coming that this, this has cosmic implications. This isn't just on, a, on, on our level, earth level, human level. Angels are involved in this, working God's plan. This is cosmic in scale.
Jesus doesn't cling to his title. He doesn't take God's pronouncement of him and, and uses it for his own benefit, but willingly follows. He didn't count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking form of a certain, because this is why Jesus has come, right? This is why he's come. He's come not just to be declared our king, but he's come on a mission. He's come with a purpose. Satan knows that he's here, right? He's aware. He's, he's seen what's happening. Yet Satan is blinded by his own pride, his own arrogance. He's hoping that just like he did with Adam in the Garden of Eden, he can now lure and entice Jesus away from the goodness of his father, away from the love and safety of his father, and begin to make these false promises to him. As we think about this, we can, you, can, you can think about that Jesus' temptation was to teach us how to fight temptation, but there's something far greater going on here, something far more important. Just as, just as Adam was in the garden and representing God's people, so now Jesus, he's our new representative. He's the second and greater Adam. But, look, but, but consider the differing circumstances. Adam was tested in paradise. He lived in a world of yes, he had one no. He could feast. I mean, he was hanging out with the animals. He was naming the animals. Jesus is, is around wild animals. Jesus is in the desert. He's hungry. Adam had a companion. He had help. Jesus was alone. Adam failed. Where Adam failed, though, Christ succeeded. Where Adam fell doubting God and testing God, Christ succeeded. Where Israel fell, notice that he said that he was there for 40 days. That's another echo. Moses was on the Mount Sinai for 40 days and nights. Israel wandered the wilderness for 40, 40 years. There's this sense that the wilderness was a proving ground. It was a test of faithfulness, and it was a promise of deliverance. And so where we see Adam and Israel fail, Jesus is victorious. Jesus fulfills God's plan. The, proper, the primary point and example of this is that Jesus is a substitute for us. He is representing us in his fight against Satan. He is representing us in obeying and trusting God. He is deafening, defeating Satan and sin for us. He's representing us. He, has, he, he went into that wilderness knowing that it was going to be a fight, but he was ready to fight for us. This is not an isolated event. This is just the beginning. It's not like Satan goes away after this. This is just the beginning. Throughout the Gospels, we're going to see Jesus interacting with demons. Demons interacting with Jesus. Satan and his army are being disrupted because God's beloved son, his king, his suffering servant has come. They've tried to test him. They've thrown everything they got at him. Same as they threw to Adam, but he resisted. He obeyed God. He loved God. He didn't doubt his father. We mustn't make the mistake in thinking that, Je that just because Jesus never gave in to temptation that he just cruised through life effortlessly. It's easy to think, well, Jesus, he, he never gave in to sin, so he doesn't really know 
how hard sin and temptation is. It's just not true. Jesus, in many ways, it is harder to resist sin and temptation than it is to give in to it. Listen to this quote by C.S. Lewis. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to the temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have all lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation really means. He's the only complete realist. That's so important. Jesus, he understood temptation. He understood it more than any of us because he never gave in to it. He always obeyed his father. And, and he was, what Hebrews talks about is that he, he learned and perfected obedience, or he, was, he learned um, obedience through and was perfected through his obedience. So through facing temptation, through obeying his father, what he was doing is that he, he's able to be a high priest for us. He's able to represent us before God. And instead of hanging it over our heads, he invites us to come. And we come to a throne of grace. And so this morning, what I want to make clear is that Satan is a real enemy of Christians in the church. He hates everything we stand for. He has a passion to deceive and destroy any and all things that pertain to Christ and his church. Yet we know that Satan on this side of the cross has been defeated. Satan has dealt his blows, tried his best, and yet his best efforts fell short. And now we stand with Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail. And what, what Satan wants more than anything, what he wants more than anything is, is for us not, not is, is to focus on anything else besides Jesus. Look at your sin and failure. Look at your good works that you think makes you pleasing to God. He wants us to look at anything other than Jesus. The things we don't have, the things we do have, He's the father of all lives. Lies. You know what we need more than anything else? We need to be gripped by God's salvation and his beloved son. We need to look to Jesus. We need to set our eyes and our hearts on him. Martin Luther once said when asked how he defeated Satan, he said something like this. Satan comes and he knocks on the door of your hearts. And he says, who lives here? And Jesus comes to that door. It said, Martin Luther used to live here, but he no longer lives here. I live here now. Jesus lives in our hearts. He represents us. He represents us in the fight. We pray in Jesus' name against Satan because he is our Savior. He is our King. He is the one who came to rescue us. Christ, he has come. Christ, he has conquered. And Christ is coming back. He is going to return. Are you gripped yet? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, these, these are 
realities and truths that we just cannot pass over. These are things that, that you, you've graciously given to us so that we might know you. I pray that every person in this room would, would be able to, in faith, be call you their Heavenly Father. That Jesus would be their Savior. That you would fill them afresh with your Holy Spirit. That they would see your love for them. That they would see that you are for them, Father. I pray that against Satan and his schemes. I pray against his lies. I thank you that we have a high priest in Jesus who invites us to his throne of grace this morning. And he says that, no, you don't rely on your strength, but you rely on me. I reside in you. I am with you. It is no longer Christ who li- I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So the life we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to a message given by Jake Simmons during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.